So we wrap up our study of Elijah today, and we're, we're going to be looking at a, a rather a hodgepodge of text because we're going to kind of finish. We've actually finished the life of Elijah. We saw his rapture, his translation, his assumption into heaven last week. But I, because I think it's fascinating, I want to look at Jezebel's death today. Then I want to look at two key passages um, from later in the Old Testament and from the New Testament about Elijah, just so you can kind of have a sense of uh, the importance of Elijah in Jewish and Christian thought. So, um, it's an interesting text. It's not one you want to, like, read while you're eating your breakfast. <laughs> but um, look at Second Kings chapter 30. Uh, you remember that Elijah prophesied, um, um, you, you, Elijah prophesied that she'd have a violent death. And you see it in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. Um, yeah, it's just a fascinating picture. One of the things culturally that's fascinating about this is this is where some of the convictions came from that women shouldn't wear makeup. Um, even the church I grew up in didn't hold to that. Now, when women started wearing pants, that was a conversation. But um, that's why historically, sociologically, um, Tammy Faye Baker is famous for makeup because what was her tradition? What was her denomination? Pentecostal holiness. Yeah, I mean, they were still saying women don't wear makeup. And here comes Tammy Faye on TV. So she made it acceptable for Pentecostal holiness to wear makeup. It's interesting what gets people into the history books. But that's what, you know, one of the, you see, did you see the movie that came out recently about Tammy Faye Baker? The name was, wasn't it something like Tammy's Eyes or something? Yeah. Anyway, this is the te- one of the texts where uh, it kind of went into Christian tradition that just beware of women wearing makeup. <laughs> and, you know, and that's unfair. That's unfair to women because there's a particular reason uh, Jezebel's wearing makeup. Again, context is important. Reading what's in front of you is important. So you shouldn't read something like this and say, oh, all women for all time in every place should never wear makeup. You know, that's, that's doing something with the text that may not be fair to the text. And it's not fair to some of us who have to look at some of these women without makeup. Um, I just say that because of J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee used to say, and you can't get more conservative than J. Vernon McGee, he used to say that you know, even a Old barn needs a good coat of paint every now and again. Um, and I do know some men that wear makeup. Um, it's only been a couple times when I was in some TV situations where I refused to let them do that to me. It just was weird. You know, they didn't want glare off my bald spot. And they do makeup. Anyway, so, yeah. I'm glad they do, but you certainly can't use Jezebel as a reason not to. But uh, anyway, look at the text, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, now Jehu is the king that takes over after Ahab. Ahab's dead. Remember, we saw the death of Ahab. So when King Jehu came to Jezreel, again, Jezreel's the city, the second home, sort of the uh, summer home, winter home, of um, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab's dead at this point. Anyway, when King Jehu comes to the city of Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. So there's your makeup. Now, she painted her eyes. She adorned her head. Now, some of your translations, which are sort of paraphrases, may help you out at this point. What do you think she adorned her head with? A crown. A crown. A crown. So um, she's, she's trying to accomplish something. 
She's trying to accomplish something with King Jehu coming to town. So she puts a crown on her head, and she um, puts on the makeup, painted her eyes. She puts on the makeup. Um, Probably one of two reasons. One, who is her God? Baal, or Baal, Baal. That's her God. That's what's created the whole story. That was her God. That's the God she brought from um, uh, the Phoenicians. That's a God she sort of popularized among the Israelites that caused them to fall into idolatry. That's her God, it's Baal. Uh, Baal is a God of many things, including fertility. Fertility gods particularly... Aphrodite, same way, Greek god. Fertility gods particularly had like temple prostitutes. That was kind of the way you prayed and worshipped a fertility god. That's what Paul dealt with in Corinth. You had a thousand temple prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. That's why Paul has to tell those Christian folks in Corinth, going to a prostitute for her services or his services, that's a bad idea for Christians. It's, it's wrong for Christians. But anyway, so here's, here's Jezebel. She worships Baal. She's, she's trying to do one of two things, we think. And this is not the makeup's fault. She's trying to do one of two things. She is trying to either intimidate um, King Jehu. Again, she... she um, She's looking out of a window. Get the picture here. She puts the crown on. She makes it kind of obvious. She looks like a worshiper of Baal. She's looking out the window in sort of a royal fashion. This is a terrible analogy, but I think about the Pope's audience out of the window at St. Peter's every Sunday. So she's looking out the window kind of in royalty because she's still the queen, she thinks. She's still the queen. King's dead. She's the queen. She's really been the one that's ruled while Ahab was ruling. So she's either trying to intimidate. Some people say maybe she's trying to seduce Jehu as a temple prostitute. So she's being, and this does everything you know about Jezebel, she's being very self-serving. She's being very self-promoting. Um, she's being uh, very self-protective of her status. And this is how she's receiving the king. In a window with a crown, looking like a bell worshiper, which means she has all this influence with all the bell worshipers in, in, in Israel. So that's the way um, she's greeting the king. Again, being in a window puts him higher than the king, looking down on the king. So intimidation or... Seduction. We we know Jezebel's up to something. She just want she just she didn't just want to get a peek at the new king. So look at verse thirty one. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, "Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your? Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? In other words, are you coming in peace, Zimri? Now you know you probably didn't read about Zimri before you went to bed last night." Zimri was a very short-term king, very, seven days. That's a pretty short-term king. He was also a king who kind of achieved his kingship in battle because of the death of the other king, which is similar to what happened to Ahab and Jehu. So when she looks out the window and says, Are you coming in peace, Jehu? She calls him sarcastically the name Zimri. Which Jehu would have known about Zimri. Short term, seven day king who um, many considered was uh, not the rightful king because he, he came as a result of the death of the other king. So she's insulting him, she's being sarcastic to him. So again, this fit, all this fits Jezebel's personality. And it's not all about makeup that's going on here. So verse 32 and he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out. Now, 
Some of your translations might have a word there in verse 32 other than eunuch. Do you have a word that's not as specific as eunuch? <laughs> a lot of translations just say officials. Um, eunuchs were officials that served the queens that kept harems because eunuchs have been castrated. So they're not a threat to the king or whoever has the harem. So that's why eunuchs were officials. Um, so these it's, it's not really important that they're eunuchs. That's what the Hebrew says. Uh, what's important is they are some of her officials. They're serving her. That's why they're in the room with her. Um, but Jehu says to them, you know, probably nobody liked Jezebel. Um, I'm sure there are days Ahab didn't like Jezebel. Uh, and I'm sure people who served her didn't like her. So these two eunuchs who are in the room at the window with her um, look out and see King Jehu. And uh, verse 33, King Jehu said, throw her down. And they thought, well, he's king now. This is a good deal. And they toss her. They toss her out the window. Um, so you kind of, again, get the feeling that people had for Jezebel. They toss her out the window as soon as Jehu says, throw her down. They throw her out the window and keep reading. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses as they trampled on her. So what did Jehu do? He ran over her. Probably multiple times. And he killed her. So, um, yeah, whether he, she was trying to seduce or intimidate, neither worked. You know, King Jehu is going to protect himself um, from, from Queen Jezebel, the new king from the old queen. Verse 34, then he went in, went in the palace, went in where King Ahab lived with Queen Jezebel. Ahab's dead. Then he went in the palace and he ate and drank. He went and had a party. Again, that's how he feels about Jezebel. Now look at what he says. And he said, see how to see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is the queen. That's right. Remember, she's, she is the daughter of King Etbal from Phoenicia. So he, he's not recognizing her queenship. You know, they all knew she was the daughter of a king from the coast, and that's why Ahab married her to kind of consolidate, create an alliance between the two kingdoms. So again, that's just a little slight toward Jezebel. He doesn't refer to her as queen. Uh, he's the new king. Um, verse 35, But when they went to bury her, and this, this is what Elijah prophesied way back in uh, chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Um, so, you know, King says, go see to the king's daughter and, and bury her. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back, because what, what was it Elijah prophesied would happen at her death? Eaten by dogs. Eaten by dogs. So look at verse 36. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord which was spoken of by servant Elijah, the Tishbite. Uh, and then quotes, quotes what Elijah said. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And again, we've talked about how dogs in biblical culture. Um, by the way, to this day, in Orthodox Judaism and in Islam, dogs are not highly thought of. If you ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, cats everywhere, dogs nowhere. Anyway, we, we've domesticated dogs in our culture. So, yeah, this is not like my dog, Jaxie. We've domesticated dogs. They're parts of our family. In, in, the, in the times of the Bible, they were scavengers. They were scavengers. They hung out at the city dumps, and they were scavengers. Uh, so, yeah, that was why when... Elijah made the prophecy in the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the courts of Jezebel shall be dung on the face of the field. Because after the dogs eat her, the dogs then deposit her 
as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. So there's going to be no shrine built to Jezebel. Even the Baal worshipers can't put up a shrine for Jezebel. So uh, thus ends the, the queen who led the people of Israel into false worship. Uh, so it's not about makeup. It's a warning of leading people into false worship of a God other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that kind of ends the narrative. Um, so that ends the narrative. Now what I want to say for a few moments is the ongoing importance of Elijah in Jewish and Christian theology. We've talked about how in, um, at every Passover meal, almost every Passover meal, particularly in uh, conservative traditional Jewish homes, at Passover meal there's a place set for Elijah to return in every home. Because, because of the, we talked last week, we saw the rapture, the translation, the assumption of Elijah into heaven. So he, and who's the other one that, was, that didn't have to go through death? Enoch. That's why there's this rich, rich tradition of a lot of literature that they left in a unique way. They may come back. Because they didn't have to leave through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's why he got all these traditions, and I'm going to show you some from the rest of the Bible, that Enoch and Elijah may come back. Um, and, and that's why Elijah continues uh, to uh, influence um, in a dramatic way. So turn to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. This is actually one of the texts that you may hear during Advent. So this is where you're getting into Hebrew prophecy about the um, work of Christ. That's why you may hear this text during the season of Advent. So look at the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Or, By the way, this is the way we put the Hebrew Bible together. In our Christian Bible, and, and I'm going to show you why in a minute. There's a really good reason. Um, we, we, we have the same list as our Jewish brothers and sisters, but we list them differently. If you read a Jewish Bible, Second Chronicles comes last. Um, for several reasons. But for us, it's Malachi. And, you know, you probably have never thought, hmm, wonder why when Christians put the Old Testament together, we put Malachi last. Well, here comes a good answer. And I think it's very interesting. Um, look at chapter 4. This is a prophecy of the coming great day of the Lord when um, God's going to set everything to right. When, and, and that's a Jewish hope, and it has become a Christian hope. God is going to intervene one day and set everything to right. Uh, pure, strict, godly justice will prevail. Um, evil will be vanquished. That, that's been the hope of the Jewish and the Christian communities for, for millennia. So that's why in the Hebrew Bible it tends to be called the Day of the Lord. Uh, that phrase occurs in the New Testament, uh, and that, that's the phrase that is in reference to the second advent of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the consummation of the kingdom. So this is, what, this is one of the texts, that, one of the many texts that are appointed for reading during Advent. So look at chapter 4, uh, coming from the prophecy of Malachi. By the way, it's not Malachi. I heard him referred to one time as Malachi. He's a, he's a Jewish prophet, not an Italian prophet. He's Malachi. So look at chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. They'll be burned up. The day is coming, the, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Without a root or branch, they're totally destroyed. They won't come back. Verse 2, but for you who fear reverence, my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its or his wings. Now I'm going to give you a chance to really impress me this morning. My favorite Christmas carol, Christmas hymn, Christmas carol, has a reference to the Son of Righteousness. What is it? 
I've tried to figure it out. As I was reading it, I did I tried so hard to remember. I, I know it's there. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you this. So when you, when you hear it this season, you'll say, oh, yeah. That's why, that's why Mr. Wesley uses that phrase in that Christmas carol. So that really limits it. Well, it doesn't limit it, but from our experience, it limits it. Wesley wrote a whole lot of Christmas stuff, but what's the one most of us sing most? Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah, when you sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, pay attention to a reference to the Son of Righteousness that shall rise with healing in His wings. Because again, we Christians look at this and we say, hmm, who is the Son of Righteousness? Well, from a Christian perspective, we know who it is. Um, and it comes from Malachi. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, let me say a word about why Son of Righteousness before we get to Elijah. The Son can both warm you or destroy you. Jesus can warm you or destroy you. It, it has to do with your relationship to Him. So the, the heat of the sun can be deadly or life-giving. It can, it can be both. But with Jesus, it's your choice, which it is. But if you fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its or His wings. The, the, by the way, where that emblem comes, throughout ancient literature, lots of places in ancient literature, the sun is frequently pictured as a disc with wings. Think about that a moment. Why? Because the ancients, they never thought the world was flat. The intelligent ones, anyway. They never thought the world was flat. They did think the they did think the, the earth stood still and the sun moved around it. So that's why he got a sun with wings. Um, anyway, so that's why, that's why the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, of righteousness, and you can kind of see again in the Christian community, we play with the sun, S-U-N, sun, S-O-N. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, his wings. And then here comes another metaphor image. You shall go out like calves from the stall, that's a picture of what? If you're saying that you, those of you that are on the right side, when this day comes, you shall go out like cattle from the stall. What's the image there? What should you be seeing at that point? Freedom? I mean, think about a calf, cow in a stall. He's been pinned up. Yeah. So they leave. Now, I'm not much of a farmer. Some of you may be. But I could imagine you, you leave a cow, calf, in a stall, fattening them up, keeping them confined. When you let the gate open, they may, they may leave with a lot of joy, <laughs> heading into the open field. So some, to think Hebraically, to think like a Jew, you've got to be able to picture some of this stuff. Now, the American... <clears throat> The American mind is impoverished when it comes to imagination. So you got to picture, what does it look like for a cow to go, you know, the gate finally gets open and here goes the cow, the calf, you know, uh, rollicking joyfully. That's what the day of the Lord means for us. Yeah, been free. all these images, beautiful and free from death. You know, they've not been, they're not waiting slaughter. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to, to think Hebraically. Think about Jesus' parables. To think Hebraically, you've got to think about images. The text I preached from Sunday was about, you know, the signs of His coming. So Jesus used an image. Do you remember? For those of you that sat through this, do you remember? The fit fig tree. The fig tree. Yeah, because again, you, you, you see that. All the trees in Holy Land's mostly evergreen. So he says, think about the fig tree. When the fig tree is not an evergreen, when it leaves up in late spring right before summer, it is announcing the coming of summer. And that's why there'll be signs of my coming. So yeah, Hebrew, the Hebrew mind loves to paint pictures. And we're a little impoverished when it comes to imagination seeing pictures. I love that image. That when the kingdom finally comes, we shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked. 
We may not mean to, but maybe in our exuberance and our rollicking, <laughs> we, we will tread down the wicked who have fallen. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, that's the image of the day of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of good stuff in this book, and people just read little bits of it. This is good stuff. That's an image of the day of the Lord, the day we're waiting on. We call it Second Advent. Uh, the, the phrase Second Coming does not occur in the Bible, but the parousia, the return of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom. Anyways, here's a picture. Now watch what Elijah, uh, Malachi does with Elijah. And notice the two people he's going to talk about now. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Well, it's the law of Moses. That's what we call it. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I have commanded him at Horeb. Horeb's the other name for Sinai. That's where Elijah ran back to. So remember Moses. As you prepare for this day, remember Moses. Again, the ceremonial laws, the civic laws are not still in force for Christians, but the moral law definitely is. You know, we don't slaughter animals on the altar, but we do keep the Ten Commandments. The moral law still tells us the mind of God. So remember Moses, he says, as you're preparing. And keep in mind these two characters, because this is going to come into play when we finish looking at something in the book of Revelation. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I have commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now in verse 5, he's going to end, he's going to end this book that we Christians put last in the list of Old Testament books to read. Not, you know, it's not important, but you notice know, so you turn to the next book, it's Matthew, you're in the New Testament. So we, end the, we, end, we consciously end the Old Testament with these words. Remember Moses, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Um, and he will turn. The word turn there is shuv in the Hebrew. That's the word from which, in Hebrew, we get the word repentance, turning, repentance. Uh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, fascinating text here. One thing you have to understand about Old Testament prophecy, again, Jews don't quite understand how we do this, but we know how we do this. You look at a text like this and we say, this is a prophecy from Jesus, about Jesus. So we see all these prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. Now we have the choice, and we have to make an intelligent decision. We have the choice that when we see these prophecies, we know that some were fulfilled at his first coming. So if it wasn't fulfilled at his first coming, we Christians who believe in the second coming... It'll be fulfilled in the second coming. So anytime you run across something, in, and you'll hear some of this in, um, um, you'll hear some of this in readings for Advent, because some of them was fulfilled in the Advent, first Advent of Jesus um, at Bethlehem. If if you can't find it fulfilled in the first Advent, you're you're welcome to put it in the category of the second Advent. Um, so every and, and in the Hebrew Bible, though, those are mixed. You with me? Uh, some of you know Charles Swindoll, um, great preacher. He says prophecy in the Hebrew Bible is like a mountain range. You know, if you're at a great distance from the mountain range, you can't tell how far apart those mountains are. They look right next to each other. Now, there may be distance. If you get closer, there may be distance from those mountains. That's the way we're looking at Hebrew prophecy. So we have to look at it and say, okay, we can put some of these prophecies on the first mountain, which is his first coming, and put the rest of what remains in the second mountain, his second coming. Well, obviously, we think, well, we, and sometimes though we can say maybe both. Maybe both. I'll show you that in a minute in Revelation. But in the Christian perspective, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who is the New Testament Elijah in the Gospels? John the Baptist. That's why he looks like John the Baptist. He dresses like John the Baptist. That's why he wears the, the clothing of Elijah. Uh, so they, he, he dresses like Elijah, looks like Elijah, because he is prophesied to be the forerunner. Again, during the Advent season, uh, some, many of the other texts assigned for Advent is about John the Baptist. 
Um, so, um, yeah, he's the forerunner. He's the return of Elijah. And what was it that John the Baptist, in preparing for the coming of Jesus, what was it he preached out there to Jordan River? Repentance. Repent. Yeah, make straight. Take care of your life. Make straight. Prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He, he preached a uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, that's, again, this Elijah character, verse 6, he will turn, he will shuv, he will repent. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of other utter destructions. So he's preaching repentance. He's bringing about, and you actually can translate the Hebrew both ways here, and your Bible may point that out to you. He's turning the hearts of children to the father, father to the children, or he's turned the hearts of the fathers and the children together to God, or he could be doing both. He's reconciling parents and children to each other as they come into the true faith, and as a result of reconciling parents and children to each other as they come into a common shared true faith, that he's reconciling them to God. So that's, that was a ministry that was the ministry of John the Baptist. So that appears to be sort of fulfilled at his first coming. By the way, let me tell you something. This is, I usually really like the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is right. But let me show you something. In my English Standard Version, verse uh, 6 says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's another way you can translate that, and I think probably most of the translations do it. My last word there in verse 6, which is the last word of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, in, in my translation is destruction. What is it in yours? Curse. I wish ESV had done that. Yeah, the last word of the Old Testament is curse. You end the Old Testament with a curse. You end the Old Testament with the curse still in force. You end the Old Testament with um, the curse. I go back to Genesis chapter 3, all that Adam and Eve stuff. We were cast out of the garden, and we are under a curse. Um, when you sing Joy to the World this Christmas, notice it makes reference to the curses ended. So, yeah, we Christians made sure that our translation... Um, of Malachi, usually, except for ESV. Our translations of Malachi, and the, and the last word, the last word in the Bible before you turn to Hebrew, we don't want, before you turn to Gospels, we don't want you finishing with Second Chronicles, we want you finishing with Malachi. So the last word you read is the curse, and then you turn to the Gospels. And you see how Eden is going to be restored. You see how the curse is going to be alleviated. Or healed. So, isn't that, isn't that neat? You know, I mean, there's no extraneous word. We, you know, it amazes me. We Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. Add the Jews on top of us. We've been doing it for about 4,500 years. And people every now and again think, you know, they, they think they come up with something we haven't thought about. You know, we, we've lived with this stuff for a really long time. And, you know, and there's not much that we've done that's not been intentional. Um, so that's why we Christians, we, we, put the, we put the books of the Bible, the, six, the 39 books of the Old Testament, in, in this order. Um, that's not the way the Jews do. The Jews do the law, the prophets, and the writings, which means they end with Second Chronicles. Because um, it makes a difference theologically. Uh, Malachi chapter 4 prepares you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's the way the Old Testament ends. Okay, that's kind of neat. Um, let me show you again one more way that Elijah has maintained the New Testament. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And uh, we could spend a lot of time with this text, but I'm just going to show you the Elijah part of it. Um, and I will one day... Maybe not in the too distant. I, 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 taught, I taught my way through the book of Revelation, maybe my second year here, five years ago. Um, I'll do it again sometime soon.
because I really do love the book of Revelation. But again, Americans have a hard time with the book of Revelation because you can't see pictures in your brain. You see logical arguments. And the book of Revelation is a vision, so you need to see a vision more than you need to analyze a vision. Now, if you want to analyze a vision, that's okay, but see the vision first. Experience the power of the vision. Then analyze it. But Americans don't know how to... Um, um, don't, they don't know how to. They don't know how to use metaphor imagery. When I was doing doctoral studies, and we were talking about the renewal of the church and how God sends revival, and looking at church history, I'll never forget that great church historian, devout Christian, who is anyway. I'm going on by Dr. Richard Lovelace. Google Dr. Richard Lovelace. Uh, he was my mentor for my doctoral program, and. Um, it's dangerous me telling you that because I sort of channel Richard Lovelace a lot. He died several, a few years ago. But I'll never forget when I started with him, when we started, he made us read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. You ever read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland? One of the most bizarre things I'd ever tried to read. It made no sense to me. It made no sense to me. Um... Just one of the reasons, by the way, C.S. Lewis did not like T.S. Eliot. Thought his poetry was bizarre and weird and strange. They, got, they became friends at the end of their life when the Church of England used both of them on a committee to revise the Psalter for the Book of Common Prayer. So they warmed up to each other. But I'm a little like C.S. Lewis. I, I, I can't comprehend T.S. Eliot. But the reason Dr. Lovelace had us read The Wasteland, it is a poem chocked full of imagery, picture, metaphor. He did that to because we were going to study eschatology, like the visions of the book of Revelation. He did that to prove to us how poorly we cannot see images. We can, see con we, we can write logical concepts out. You know, um, when we see something like, you'll go forth leaping like a calf out of the stall, you just run on past that. You, you don't stop and... What does that look like? And what's the Bible trying to say that there? But yeah, the book of Revelation is first and foremost a vision. You're told that many times. It is a revelation, a revealing, a vision of Jesus Christ's glory. So, you know, you, you, you do, we do damage to the book of Revelation when we analyze it before we see it. You need to see. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us the gift of seeing the vision. He's writing down the vision he saw so that we can see it. But we have a hard time seeing. We do, that's just, we're so, and I'm one of the worst left-brained people you ever meet. We're so left-brained in this culture. You, metaphors, images, you know. We just, anyway. So, so I, I can't, we could spend a lot of time in chapter 11, but just I want to make sure you know this occurs in the book of Revelation. There's two witnesses that will come. Two witnesses will show up before the end. Now watch this. So we'll just read through it kind of quickly and wrap up. Then I was giving a measuring rod. Oh, I could talk about that for a long time. What's going on here? What it means to measure. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple. We could talk about what the temple is from a New Testament perspective. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the outer court, the court outside the temple. Measuring means you're, you're taking ownership. You're possessing. So the temple gets measured. But there's something, somebody outside the temple. Don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, for they will trample the holy city for 42 months, which is how many years? Do the math. Three and a half. Verse 3, and that becomes important otherwise. Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days which is 42 months, right? I hate math. Which is three and a half years. It's the same time period. So um, for this 42 months, these last three and a half years, his two witnesses will prophesy. Prophesy is a Bible word for preaching. That's what it means. More, it's not necessarily predicting the future. 
That's what Jeannie Dixon does, and that's probably what you think about when you hear the word prophecy. Prophesying means preaching in the biblical tradition. So they will prophesy. They'll preach for 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. So you should go, hmm, wonder who these two witnesses are. Don't forget Malachi 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So olive trees, and there's lots of things you can do with this. Olive trees give life. If you go to Israel or Greece, they are really dependent on olives for lots of things. Uh, Olive trees give life. Lampstands give light. So these two witnesses are going to give life and light. That they, 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 They will stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours down from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They will, sh- they will have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of the prophesying. Okay, stop right there. This per- one of these people, yeah, is going to have the power to stop rain. Elijah. If you're a Hebrew reading this, you know that um, for other reasons too. Uh, They will have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of the prophecies. And here goes to the second person. They'll have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who's that? Yeah, you know that from Charlton Heston, if nothing else. Yeah, that's Moses. So most of your study Bibles probably tell you this is probably Elijah and Moses, or Elijah and Moses figures who will precede the second coming, just like an Elijah figure preceded the first coming. Um, so yeah, so here, that's how we... There, some people do think um, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, you don't need to worry about that, has to do with the olive trees, but most of us think this is probably Elijah and Moses. Pretty obvious, I think, Elijah and Moses. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, this is the first occurrence of the beast in the book of Revelation, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street. What does it mean to leave bodies lying in the street like with Jezebel? It's desecrating a body. It's terrible, terrible insult. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city... That is symbolically, even the book of Revelation used the word symbolically here, trying to get, uh, you, get us to think in symbols, in pictures, in images, visions. So this great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was, in case you're a little slow in the uptake here, where their Lord was crucified. What city is this? Yeah. That, you know, it has, it has had sin, it's had, yeah. It's been that way. Symbolically, it's called Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Lord is crucified. For three and a half days, now not years, but days, uh, some from the peoples and the tribes and the language and the nations will gaze on their dead bodies, you know, out of mockery and, you know, they're going to leave them laying there. Gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb because they're trying to be, they're trying to desecrate these two preachers. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets that had tormented, to, that, that, that had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth, these two prophets, they had tormented them. Earth dwellers in the book of Revelation are people who are not kingdom dwellers. Earth dwellers are those people tied closely to the earth. So the earth dwellers... Not the people tied to the kingdom of God, but the earth dwellers, they are having a good time that these two, um, you know, these two preachers weren't positive in their preaching. They tormented the people. So they were glad, the people, the earth dwellers were glad when they finally go away. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I bet they did. So that's a resurrection-type picture. Uh, they come alive. And it's not just a resurrection-type picture. And by the way, uh, you can hold this till we study eschatology. Notice this is happening at the end 
of the three and a half years at the end of the great period of suffering, at the end of the great tribulation. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. That's the gathering of the saints to Jesus at the second coming. Anyway, so you keep reading. But Elijah and Moses returns in some form or fashion, like, like John the Baptist was the Elijah that returned. Yeah, we've just never gotten over Moses and Elijah, you know, for lots of reasons. And um, there's other places. The transfiguration, which we talked about on our first time together. When Jesus is transfigured on the Mount, uh, on Mount, on Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, probably Mount Hermon, when Jesus is transfigured there, you know, in his ministry before he goes to the cross and he shines gloriously, and Peter, James, and John are up there on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. Who are the two people that appear with them? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. That's who appears with them. So yeah, we've been smitten by Elijah in a lot of ways. And we're not going to let him go, and he's not letting us go. Questions, comments, reflections. We'll get out of here. Yes? I've got a question, and please tell me if this is right or wrong, because it's been a long time since I've heard this or, or read it. But uh, when, when Moses went to the top of the mountain and he looked over and Joshua was with him, then Moses, you know, you know, Joshua is not with Moses when Moses dies. It's like Moses walks away and nobody knows where Moses was buried. So, the, you know, that particular person referred back to the transfiguration, uh, referred back to this about Moses and Elijah, you know, were never buried. Because, because they look for well, if you read it, to, read it at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says God buried Moses. Okay. But we know not where. Because God probably knew the Jews would have made a shrine out of it. Mm-hmm. But no, we don't. So it, that's getting real close to Elijah and Enoch. We don't know. We didn't see. And that's why in the book of Jude, this is going to be a homework, there's that reference to another book that's not in your Bible, the Assumption of Moses. Go look at the book of Jude. Uh, There's a reference about Michael the archangel fighting the devil over the body of Moses. Michael saying, I'm burying him on behalf of God. And and the devil said, oh, he's a murderer. I get him. So yeah, there's lots of Christian literature in our early days. But Jude quotes the assumption of Moses. Because otherwise we know nothing about that story. What are you talking about, Jude? Michael the archangel fighting with, fighting with the devil over the body of Moses. But because they didn't get to bury the body of Moses, I think Deuteronomy says God buried him. So that's getting pretty close to an Elijah Enoch type thing. They kind of mysteriously went away. So that gives them the freedom to mysteriously keep showing back up. And that's what's happening in Jewish and Christian tradition. What else? Now, I'm going to lay some terms on you um, that you don't need to worry about. I believe rapture comes after tribulation. That's, the, that's been the historic view of the church for 2,000 years until about 130 years ago when some people figured out another way to do it. Um, if you look at that text, three and a half years, the preaching of Moses and Elijah, which probably did bring some great revival, they get killed and then they get to go up. You know, it's not clear in the Bible, so you need to be a little bit humble about your eschatology. Yeah, a, a, you know, 150 years ago, some Christians, instead of founding... I mean, we know about the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. About 150 years ago, some Christians came up with another return of Christ which has been problematic. Um, a halfway return before tribulation and then the return of Christ after the tribulation. I hope that's right. I think a lot of, I think Satan loves the preaching of pre, the pre-rapture. Because when, he, when, he, when they show up with doing these great miracles, 
And you know, I tell the the people in the last 150 years who found stuff the rest of us had not found that says, you know, we don't we we Christians would never go through the tribulation. That only sells in England and the United States. Go try to sell tell that to the Christians in Sudan right now. They'll tell you there's no tribulation in the Bible painted worse than what they've lived through. So, I mean, you know, I hope, there's part of me that hopes two and a half comings of Christ is right. First time, second time, halfway down to take his church, and then the second coming. You know, I'll let him come all he wants to come. And, and, and I'll, I wish he would rapture me out of my next colonoscopy. <laughs> but it's not been the history of the church. We've never seen that. And again, it only sold in England and the United States because we have life so good. We can't imagine it being really, really bad for us here. And I, not that I wish for that, but it's not been the history of the Christian community around the world to say tribulation is something we don't experience. I mean, it's, you know, you got the imagery in the book of Revelation that is horrific imagery. Talk to some of the Christians in Sudan. Talk to some of those Christians in Nigeria. What they've been living with now for, for years. Talk about... I, I did a wedding for one of the lost boys of Sudan who watched his family slaughtered because of their Christian faith. There have been more martyrs for Christianity in the 20th century than any century in Christian history and is continuing to increase. Yeah, we're not being killed by radical Islam. But don't go to the rest of the world and say, oh, you, you'll, you'll, get to, you'll get to avoid the Great Tribulation. They will say, we think we're in the Great Tribulation. That's why, again, you heard me say it, some of you heard me say it Sunday, we're not looking for signs. I think the historical church has always said, there's some mystery to this. Uh, don't ever say there has to be four things to happen before Jesus returns. Because as soon as you say that, what have you just done theologically? You're not looking for the return of Christ. You're looking for some other things to occur. Which I, I know I slipped it in fast in a sermon yesterday. When I, and this, you know, Jesus said, don't pay attention. Don't try to predict. You know, I kind of talked about that part of Mark 13 by saying we're not looking for signs. We're looking for Him. The historic church has always been, we're looking for the return of Christ. The church has never felt like we know it's at least seven years in the future. And if you believe there's some sort of great tribulation still yet to come, then you're not looking for Christ, you're looking for those seven years. There have been in the last 20 years, and I'd love to give you a bibliography, in the last 20 years there's been strong evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing, serious New Testament Christians who have called into question that you may somehow get to not deal with the great tribulation that comes at the end of history. Because again, people start realizing we never said otherwise to 150 years ago. Nobody, nobody's ever said otherwise to 150 years ago. And that's why in the Christian faith, something you came up with 150 years ago, I'm going to look questioningly at that at least for a while. Again, he can rapture me. The rapture for the historic church is the gathering together of the saints in the air at the second coming. I don't have to create a partial second coming before the real second coming to allow that to happen. Because I'm a historic Christian. I've read the creeds of the church. I know what we taught for 1950, 1900 years. Now again, if he wants to take me out of what something may be a great, 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 great tribulation to come for seven years, again, I, he can rapture me out of my next colonoscopy if he wants to. But you know, at that point, what I'm looking for is not the return of Christ. I'm looking for the start of that seven-year period. And you're doing some serious theological readjustment. That's why the creeds just simply say, what do, 
this this is not fair to the rest of you because you didn't hear my sermon yesterday because it's Advent. We're talking about Second Advent. The historic creeds. When the historic creeds reference the second coming, do the Apostles' Creed. What is what is what does the only thing the Apostles' Creed say about the second coming? He will come. He will come again. It is a bodily return. He will come to judge the quick, not the fast, but the living and the dead. Anything else beyond that, you need to hold with some humility. You need to hold with some humility. And, but we, and with some humility and Christian charity, such as don't talk to all, don't tell all those martyrs who have been slaughtered for Christ in the last hundred years. Oh, y'all haven't been through the Great Tribulation. Wait till, what, wait till that comes. I mean, that's a little uncharitable to those people. And you can only do that from, a, from an English. It didn't even get into Europe. It was English and America. That's where that, that's where that flourished at. You know, the whole Left Behind series, the book of Revelation has 22 chapters. Left Behind series has, what, 13 volumes? That should tell you something. That's why it's filed under the fiction section. Um, yeah, just you need to hold the rest of your eschatology. Let me tell you one last thing and I'll let you out of here. We'll finish Elijah and eschatology. The other thing you need to be careful of, this is where eschatology becomes important. You know, there's Christians in the world for the last 150 years who have said that at the end time, life would just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's all they would say. Well, guess what that does to the church's evangelism? Guess what that does to the church's conviction that the Holy Spirit can bring revival? Guess what that does to the church's conviction that the Holy Spirit can bring revival to such an extent that we can lay off half the police force in High Point? All of a sudden, and it's only happened in the last 150 years, that um, Christians have not expected anything. They've not expected God nor the gospel to do anything significant. Things just get worse and worse and worse. That's why in the Christian community, we moved away from writing hymns like owner Christian soldiers to writing hymns like hold the fort. Do you feel the difference? And that's why don't let your eschatology be uncharitable. Don't let your eschatology torpedo the mission and evangelism of the church. You know, I mean, there's some people in our culture today, if great revival came, the Holy Spirit did a new work in High Point to where we can, this has happened historically, it happened in the Welch Revival, that's why I'm using this illustration, and that we have brought such revival to High Point that we could lay off half of our police force there's some good devout Christians who say, well, that's a shame. That means Jesus is coming back no time soon. Well, no. You heard me yesterday say, yeah, at the end, the wheat and the tares will grow together. Earth will get tired. Evil will increase. Um, spiritual deception will increase. If you remember my list, I remember this because I preached it twice on Sunday morning. Evil will increase. Um, I think I said spiritual deception. But anyway, remember the last thing I threw on the list? And there'll be great revival. A lot of contemporary Christians have lost that last piece. And the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, and the preaching of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of, that, there's a lot of stuff that show there may be great revival. All of Israel may come to Jesus in the great revival at the end. So when you do an eschatology that says, oh, well, there's absolutely nothing we can do to bring revival, and isn't that great because that means Jesus is about to return, that torpedoes the mission of the church. So that's just a wet your whistle. We'll, we'll take a couple years and do eschatology in the book of Revelation because there's been a lot of weird work with the book of Revelation in the last few years. It's one of my favorite books. One of the things I did with um, one of the things I did with Dr. Lovelace 
Because I, I really, I know you don't lay awake at night thinking this. I, I did a lot of work on how eschatology, the doctrine of the end, and what you think's coming, how that affects the mission of the church and evangelism. So I did a whole lot of work with Revelation, which probably, well, if you look at my library, the, probably the, well, the largest single number, the largest collection of books in my library is um, on New Testament. And then sec, Old Testament probably second close. But if you, if you start looking at my subcategories, my two largest collections and subcategories, this won't surprise you. Well, one is eschatology, the book of Revelation. I own a ridiculous number of commentaries on the book of Revelation. Um, I have commentaries on the book of Revelation. My other single largest category is, guess who? Yeah. Um, anyway, so that gives you some food for thought.